Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Thank you, Michelle. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for the next 25 minutes that you might quiet our heart and you might show us through just words on a page how you intend to change us. So we pray that you'll do that for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in a series on money, a series on how to handle wealth. This is the last of three weeks. You learned two weeks ago, right, that there is a kind of power about money that tends to consume us, that can tend to captivate us like it did Zacchaeus. You, you saw that when you have an experience of grace, it turns our priorities about money upside down. Like it makes you view money totally different than the way that you learned money when you were growing up, probably. In the last week, we saw that when you understand, when you have an experience of grace, when you see the gospel, then you understand that you're a steward. Your entire role with regards to money begins to change. It no longer becomes something that you own. It becomes something that the Lord has given to you to then use for his glory and for his name's sake. You become a steward. Now, this week, we look at the last week on this series of stewardship, and you learn something about the nature of our peace with money. You don't just have an upside-down priority. You don't have an upside-down Stewardship, but you'll have an upside-down kind of peace as it regards money. This week, you see the diagnosis to the baseline anxiety that you and I have about money, and you see the cure. So those are the two points this morning. The diagnosis to a baseline anxiety that most of us have about money, and the cure. The diagnosis and the cure. All right? There are the points. Now, the diagnosis. Let's just jump right in. At the end of the book of Hebrews, Paul gives us this, or the author of Hebrews, we don't know who it is. We don't know if it's Paul or if it's Barnabas. We don't know who the author is. We have this litany of commands that he then uses to summarize all that he's taught in the entire book. And he goes through and he says, okay, I want you guys to be sexually moral okay i want you guys to avoid certain things i want you guys to keep your life free of the love of money and it's interesting that he puts the love of money right after the command not to be adulterous 
The, the word love for money, archeo, in the Greek really means to be satiated or to have enough. The word he's talking about is to be content, means to be at peace, to be satisfied, to be okay with the current state of your possessions. That's the noun he uses. You could say that this verse means to not love money in your manner of life and to be content with your current possessions. What's interesting about the way that the author of Hebrews uses this language is it's almost exactly the same that Paul uses in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's as though the author of Hebrews plagiarized it. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, listen to what Paul says. For the love of money, not money itself, of course, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, you learn several things right off the bat about this verse in Hebrews chapter 13, verse, keep your life free of the love of money. Listen, it's not that hard. Keep your life free of the love of money and be content with what you have. It seems so simple, but it's like impossible, isn't it? You see that what Paul uses here in 1 Timothy chapter 6 is the same language that the author of Hebrew uses in chapter 13. Here's the point. Money is not an end in itself. It's a means. Money is a craving, Paul says. The love of money is a craving. It's a a power. And the baseline anxiety that you and I have of our life, the baseline anxiety fluctuates with our circumstances because we are trying to figure out how can we utilize this power we have of money to get control of my life. The first thing you learn about money is that it is a craving. If you're going to ever move toward understanding this baseline anxiety of our hearts, then you have to understand that money, the love of money becomes for you a craving. It's a power. It's not neutral. It's not neutral. It has the same addictive qualities as substance abuse. Do you know that? The longing for wealth has the same addictive qualities for substance abuse. And how do you know that? You know that because the solution to your money problem is not more money. Although that's what all of us think. Money is fundamentally a power. When the lights go out, you can have a generator sitting in your yard, but it does you no good unless you what? Unless you hook it up. Having more money, having more access, does not, it is not the solution to your problems. Money is a power that has to be directed, to be channeled, to be given into avenues that are either good or ill. They're never neutral. Money is a craving. It can be the love of money creates in us a kind of craving for more. But the solution to our money problem is never more money, even though that's what most of us think. I'll I'll give you an illustration. In 1909, there was a book written by a woman named Eleanor Porter. I've used this before. Some of you may have heard it. It's a book called Oh Money, Money. It was written in 1909. It's an old book. It's out of print now. It's about a man named Stanley G. Fulton who's a very, very wealthy man. He's a millionaire. And he's leaving, or he's dying, and he has no known relatives. And so he decides that he's going to take his wealth, and he's going to give it to some long-lost cousins that doesn't even know he exists. They live in a town called Hillerton. They're called the Blaisdells. 
And so he gets with his attorney and he says, I'm going to give all of my money away to these long lost cousins because I have no sons or daughters to give it to. And the attorney thinks, you're, you're crazy. He goes, no, 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 I'm going to give it to them, but I'm going to give them $100,000 to each family. And I'm going to watch and see how they use that money. And then the one who uses it responsibly, I'm going to give my inheritance to. And so Stanley G. Fulton um, changes his identity. He becomes a genealogist, and he moves into this town, this little small town of Hillerton, and he moves in with his family, his long-lost cousins. They don't know that he's related to them at all. And he begins, in doing this supposed genealogy project of these families in Hillerton, he becomes this amazing sociologist of people. And what happens is that as more money comes into these families' lives, Eleanor Porter shows us that the deep, entrenched sin and struggle that these families have only gets bubbled up to the surface. So by the end of the book, you have all of these families, and it's hilarious in the way that money, which is supposed to bless them, actually helps them come to their own undoing. It completely undoes them. And you've seen this in your life too. Sometimes when you um, have you know, daydreamed about what it would be like to have a, a vast estate. You imagine your life would actually perhaps be much, much better. But friends, the solution to our money problem is not more of it. It's learning how to channel that gift. It's learning how to channel those resources into productive ways that help glorify the Lord and help you become increasingly dependent on Him. How does that happen? How do you, how do you begin to allow the resources God has given you to be used for his glory and become less and less something that you think about all the time. You have to recognize that it has an addictive, the lust we have for money in this area is so addictive. You have to recognize that it is, just like substance abuse, it can be an addictive quality. And because it's in the air we breathe, there's no excuse for us. It should make you all the more perceptive of your own heart. The reason that greed is hard to identify is it's because it's an I sin. Do you know what an I, E-Y-E sin is? It's a sin that you can't see because you're looking through it at everything else. Like, you ever want to look at something in your eye? You can't see your own eyeball, can you? What do you have to do? You can never deal with your greed issue directly. You always have to deal with it indirectly. You look, use a mirror to see your eye. You have to use something else to help reflect back to your, your own sense of greed. L- let me give you an example. It is, it is very common for those of us who, um, who go to prayer meetings or go to community group, and when it's time for us to give prayer requests, very often we'll have no problem saying, I want you to pray for my marriage. You know, here's the circumstance with my child and I really need you guys to pray for me. Or would you please pray for, for my job? Would you please pray for the relationships that I have at my, at my work? Or would you please pray for my aunt who's ill or my strange uncle, you know, who's going through this or that battle with cancer? But when is the last time that you heard somebody say in a prayer meeting, would you pre- please pray for my struggle with my love for money? It's interesting, isn't it? Now, I'm not saying this to make anybody feel guilty. It's just an interesting observation. 
Like we can be more op- upfront and open about our own sexual abnormalities than we can about our lust and our thirst and our craving and our love for money. When somebody has no clothes, all of us would say, look, it's not greedy for you to go and buy new clothes. Nobody in the world except for the prophet Isaiah is ever called to walk around undressed. It's okay. Or if your body changes shape, you grow taller or your, your, your shape changes, you have no problem with people saying, go get some clothes, that's fine. Of course, that's not greedy, that's just life. But how much is enough? How many shirts do you need? How many clothes do you need? Listen, that's a question that actually you can't answer with a proof text in Scripture. Thou shalt buy ten shirts. It's not there. You have to have some serious reflection upon what the gospel has called you to to be able to answer those kinds of practical questions. And the way that the author of Hebrews calls us to not have a love of money as he tells us the greatest promise in scripture god will never leave you or forsake you imagine it like this the 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 illusion of control that money gives us is so very subtle but when you begin to notice it you begin to see it everywhere it's kind of like if, we, if you were to go to the symphony in the percussion section, the bass drum were to slightly get off. Charlie Spears knows what this is. He's here to keep us on track, right? But the bass drum starts And those of you who play music know that as soon as that bass drum gets off, Every instrument, one by one, begins to adjust to the new rhythm of that bass beat. Oftentimes, that's what happens with us with greed. When you, when you listen, when you really listen, you find that this one beat that we began to play together when you became a new Christian somehow got slightly off so that the tune that your life is living is actually not the triumphal battle cry, not the great fight song that you started playing, boom, 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 but it actually has become a kind of funeral dirge of your own demise, boom, boom, and you found that whenever you become intoxicated with the love of money, it will, like a bass drum in a symphony, take every other instrument in that orchestra with it. Your life will begin to adjust. You will begin to take jobs that are not good for you, but they pay the most, so you'll take it. And you won't think twice about it. You won't begin to ask, is this company good for the community? Is this company fair to his or her employees? Is this company good for the environment? You'll just have one bottom line. What is my hourly wage or my salary? And when you begin to act without even thinking, that's the subtlety of our love for money. Like when you go to the store, you go to Woodland Hills. Say you go to your favorite store in Woodland Hills. And you see this item on the rack, and it just glows at you, man. It's like, 
I need that whatever. And you go to that widget, whatever it is, the shirt, the blouse, the Ray-Ban sunglasses, whatever it is, you, before you even ask the question, can I afford it, you've already imagined yourself putting that on. You probably have already tried it on. You've imagined what your life is going to be like if you had this one thing. And it becomes for you a kind of mini gospel. That's what I need to look good when I drive my car. That's what I need to look good when I go into work. That's what I need to look good when my neighbors see my front yard. And what's interesting about the way that most of us do Christian discipleship, please hear me when I say this. Your imagination is what leads you toward the cross long before your mind does. Let me say that again. Your imagination, that is what you pre-consciously just do, the habits that have shaped and molded and formed you, cause you to make decisions long before you even ask yourself, is this a biblical, God-centered thing to do? Do you see what I'm saying? You don't. So, so here's what. The way that you grow in the Christian life is not just through the renewal of your mind, although Paul does tell us that in Romans chapter 12, but it's also through the renewal of your imagination. It's through the renewal of your daydreams. It's through the renewal of what you think is going to give you the most satisfaction in life. And if you are not careful to continue to go back again and again and again, to what the author of Hebrews says, you will become intoxicated with another storyline. Your imagination, your decisions, before you ever even use your brain, will already have taken you down a path you do not want to go down. So make, the point is that you often will act and do certain things not based upon what you rationally think is right, but what you have formed as the habits of your heart. The diagnosis of your love of money is brought out by questions that you need to ask yourself. Some of you do not like being around wealthy people because you just can't handle it. What do you make of that? Like when you see somebody who's really well-to-do, are you envious? It's because money has a power over you. Do you disdain them? It's because money has a power over you. Seriously, what do you think? When you think of somebody who's wealthy, do you love and respect them? Or do you envy them in your heart? Show me somebody who has not been overpowered, overcome by the love of money, and I'll show you somebody who can love wealthy people. Who loves them and respects them. Is it envious? but really loves them. Or what about poor people? When you see a poor person, do you, do you pity them and do you say oh so subtly in your heart, I'm sure glad I'm not like them. I'm better than they are. Listen, if that's true, then money has a power over you. You know that you're free from the love of money whenever you can look at a wealthy person you can say I love and I respect them. And you can say to a poor person, I love and I respect them. And A, you love and respect wealthy people. B, you love and respect poor people. And C, you're incredibly generous with what you've got. 
Can you say that? If not, it's because you have a power. There's a power over you. You're still owned by money. You know, the, the word good comes from the same word as generous. You know that, right? Beneficent, benefactor. To be a good person means you're a generous person. It's the mark of a Christian. It's marked by love. The diagnosis becomes pretty obvious when we begin to think about people who are of different socioeconomic influences or positions. And the truth of the matter is, no matter how much God has given you, there will always be somebody who has more. And so the secret is to be content in your present circumstance. The cure is to see what the author of Hebrews says. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? Because God will never leave you or forsake you. The whole story of the Bible is a story of how God has never left his people. We ripped him off in the garden. We thought we could one-up God. And you know what he did? When he had every right to cast us aside, he didn't. He stuck with us. And then later when Abraham, the Lord gave Abraham, Abraham incredible wealth. But the greatest treasure that Abraham had was God's presence, was his promise. And God stuck with Abraham. And even when Abraham had, God stuck with him. And then with Moses, God gave Moses his very presence to pull him out of Egypt, to take all of the nation of Israel out of bondage to Egypt and to be with them in the desert for 40 years by day with a pillar of fire and by night, uh, by day by a cloud and by night with a pillar of fire. And then to show that God was with them, he gave them manna. He said, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to provide for you. I am here, friends. I've not left you on, my own, on your own. And he gave them manna. And then the day that the manna stopped in Joshua chapter 5, what happened? He gave them the fruit of Canaan. He always provides for his people. You think they were concerned when that manna was going to? Yeah. But he said, I've got something better. And he gave them the fruit of the land of Canaan, and they celebrated the Passover. And then you see in the New Testament, what happens? God gives us another kind of manna, doesn't he? Except it's not white crumbly stuff. It is the bread of life himself. God gives us his very presence with a human being, his only son. And Christ comes to earth. Friends, listen. He comes to earth. And do you know why he comes to earth? He comes to earth to show you that he is your greatest treasure. But do you know how he shows you that he's his great, he is your greatest treasure? He makes you his treasure. And if you had been the only one to ever live in time or space, Jesus Christ would have made you his treasure. Do you know that? Jesus loves you enough to have gone through the agony of humanity and the hellish torments of the cross just for you. And he is therefore to be your treasured possession. 
And he is our treasured possession. That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to say throughout the whole book. This treasured possession of ours is better than the angels. In chapter 2 and 3, it's better than Moses. In chapter 4, it's better than Joshua. In chapters 5 to 7, it's better than Aaron and all of the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices and the temple. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything you've ever wanted. And Jeremiah Burroughs wrote an old book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And he said the trick in a Christian life to grow more content is not to have our desires enlarged, but to actually shrink our desires to fit our circumstances. So that when you're able to say, in my present circumstance, that Christ and what he thinks of me in my identity is enough, then you're able to be content no matter if you are fabulously wealthy. And some of you are and may become. And that's a great thing. Or if your possessions are taken away, your heart ebbs and flows with the state of your life. And when you can recognize that it doesn't ever flow. You don't desire more or less in order to form an identity. But because your identity has been formed, there's a kind of elasticity to your desires that is content. Does that make sense? And the only way to allow that, your heart to become, if you will, elastic around your circumstances is to know that there is one sure-footed reality in your life. And it's that Jesus Christ gave his life for you and he loves you. And your identity is not in the amount of money in your paycheck. It is not in the amount of money in your IRA. It is in the fact that you are a son of the living God. You are a daughter of the king. And he could never love you any more than he does right now. And so we ought to be just as fierce. Just as fierce about our problem, our struggle, our desire for our tendencies to greed as we should be about our sexual immorality. We ought to be just as fierce about our kind of uh, um, our greed as we are about the language that we use. We ought to be just as fierce about those internal, deep, subtle sins, the I kind of sins, through which you view almost everything else, but it's hard to identify it in and of itself. And you need one another to, to do that. I need you to help me with that. You need me to help you with that. That's what the body of Christ is for the early church was amazed the early uh, roman and jewish culture uh, greek culture was amazed by the way that early christians lived because they constantly served other people with their possessions they had a radically new worldview of possessions and i don't know what the lord's calling you to do and it's beyond the scope of my responsibility as your pastor or of god's word to tell you specifically but the Holy Spirit's telling you. And you know. How are you to grow in this um, spiritual discipline of laying before the Lord everything that you have and to view yourself as a steward? Contentment in life is based on His unfailing presence. Contentment is based on his unfailing presence. Do you know that in your heart?
Are you content with King Jesus? Is he enough for you? Ambrose once wrote that even poverty itself becomes riches to holy men because you see that when you have nothing, that that becomes your wealth. You, have nothing, you need nothing else except for Christ. And therefore, you can use your resources to glorify him. You can use your resources in a way that's radically different from the rest of the world, not because you want to be different, but because you are a steward. You have a fiduciary responsibility. That's a fancy word. That means that you are responsible for somebody else's money. You're responsible for God's money. It's not yours, no matter how much you think. It's not. It is his. And do you use it in a way that honors and glorifies him? Do I? And the only way that we can do that is if you take this idea that you are justified in Christ, that when Jesus looks at you, he sees you as spotless and pure and blameless. He is with you. He is with you in love to take upon himself your sin and to give you his righteousness. When that happens... You then are able to walk out the rest of your life in light of his justifying power. And the reason why many of us in the Christian life are frustrated, particularly in this area where we're always kind of discontent, is because we're not appropriating the doctrine of justification in our life. Don't let me lose you. We're not living out of what has been done for us by Jesus. You don't really functionally believe it. If you draw from your assurance and your acceptance with God, then you will continually find yourself content because his grace is enough for you because he becomes for you the treasure. He, a contentment, your contentment is based on his unfailing presence. You ever gone to the doctor and had a physical exam? He takes your vitals, he takes your blood pressure, he takes your heart rate, he palpates for you know, for, for uh, lesions and scarring and, you know, internal bleeding. You know, he, he, he does all the, and he takes your blood maybe, and then he gives you back the report. He sticks it in your chart, and he hands it to you, and you read your cholesterol. Listen, that physical exam, that objective report you get back doesn't lie. It is true. And what the Bible does for us is it is just a printed report on a page, but it's a printed report about our hearts. And it says to every one of us that there is within us this craving, this longing, this thirst, this love, this desire for money. It's in every one of us. Are you content with God's presence in your life? Do you know his presence? Have you come to the end of yourself when you recognize that I have no one else except for Jesus? And I need him. And you're not alone whenever you come to that point because you have the church the church at her best loves their brothers and sisters and holds their feet to the fire. And they're able to say, they're able to say that Jesus is my treasure. That Christ alone is what satisfies me most deeply. Is that true of you? If you're going to have an upside down kind of peace, we must as a church learn the rare jewel of Christian contentment. And that comes by recognizing that Christ is with us and that he loves us and he wants us to continue to live out of what he has already provided for us. Can we do that together? 
Can we strive to help each other do that together? Can we be okay talking about the fact that I really, we struggle with materialism? Let's pray about that together. Let's enter into that conversation together. Why do you disdain people that are a different socioeconomic status than you are? What's going on in your heart that causes you to be envious of? Are you content with where Christ has you? He wants you to be. For he is enough. For in order to become your treasure, you have to see that Jesus has made you his. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will take our, um, take our anxiety, this baseline anxiety that many of us have about money, this thirst to have more, this desire, this false thinking that if we just have more money, then life would be better. Lord, some of us who are in abject poverty, that might be true, but it's for very, very few of us. And the vast majority of all of us in this room are tremendously wealthy compared to the rest of the world. Lord, help us to be good stewards of what you've given us. And help us to know that contentment is found, is based in your unfailing presence. So Lord, would you help us to diagnose our own hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you help us to see us as we really are? Lord, to help us see the greed that's in our hearts, to recognize it for what it is, to not beat ourselves up about it, but to be fiercely honest and to allow you to more and more captivate us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.